Dishing It Out with Gary O'Hanlon and Gareth Mullins, a Go Loud original podcast. Proudly sponsored by Cully and Sully. Tastes like homemade. Grab a Cully and Sully for soup season. Go Loud. Sounds better with us. Welcome to another edition of Dishing It Out, a Go Loud original podcast with me, Gary O'Hanlon. And me, Gareth Mullins. Brought to you by Cully and Sully. And this is a bumper episode, a little bit longer than the normal episode that you're used to. But this one is all about Christmas. This is, we're going to be touching on Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, the day after, a couple of days after Christmas as well. This really is a, a show that we think you're, whoever's on the hook for the Christmas dinner this year, you're going to want to go back to it mark down wherever we talk about a certain thing we're going to be chatting brussels sprouts preparation some drink preparation even a few different ways with potatoes gareth's way with roasties and dauphinois i've got a funky dauphinois one coming up mashed potato you name it gareth's got a bones and stuffed turkey legs i do turkey a different way so we're coming at it from two different directions and as i say pop in and pop out and this really is going to be a brilliant guide to get you through what can be a stressful dinner if it's your first time doing it To kick it all off, we're going to go with a gadget. We're going to make our gadget of the week this week relative to the Christmas dinner. And Gareth, I'm going to go with a really good, deep, heavy-duty roasting tray. And actually... A must. I, yeah, it is a must. And I know I've, I've brought up our buddy Nevin before, but I actually bought the there's the deep roasting tray from Nevin's range in Dunn's a good few years ago now. Funny enough, it's the only one that hasn't had the base of it strip off you know the way that happens yeah, like yeah, whether yeah. it's Teflon or something else maybe that the one, you can get a trivet that sits in that is that that one yeah yeah, yeah. yeah well, there's sort of like a bronzy colour like a yeah. brownie one I have seen the other one that has a wee insert I mean I never use that because I always use I make my own trivet just with onion, with a mirepoix carrot celery onion and so on you need a fairly decent amount of water in your roasting tray for roasting a turkey my house is a traditional house I'm not sure about yours um, so deep roasting tray for me this week uh, to tie in with Christmas day now Gareth you usually <laughs> cross a couple of lines and uh, you make the poor Donegal boy literally feel like a poor Donegal boy not at so all what fancy gadget are you bringing to not the table not fancy at all and it, you know it's an old fashioned piece of kit and it reminds me of when I was growing up because uh, you don't really see them that much in professional kitchens but on Christmas Day, most people are going to go and attempt to roast something that's much bigger than what they normally do. So it's a turkey and a ham. So your turkey's going to be three, four kilos. Your ham could even, you know the way everyone buys that massive big ham that's four or five kilos? Yeah, me too. Me too. <laughs> but what I'm going to say is a carving fork. Because a carving fork isn't only for carving. It's a really safe bit of kit. It's good for lifting something up. Yeah. Because, you know, it can be difficult to lift up a turkey yeah. or a ham. But if you have a carving fork and you put it in at the side of yeah. whatever it is that you're lifting, it's just much safer. So It's a great shout. Yeah, the yeah. first good gadget you've actually... <laughs> I like that. You've actually I'm a truffle <laughs> shaver. That's an excellent bit of yeah, kit. I'm never going to get over the truffle <laughs> shaver, you know. But, uh, yeah, carving fork... Amazing. And then obviously when it comes to carving, for me, uh, the turkey breast needs to be carved nice and thinly. Mm -hmm. So we'll get into that a little bit more about when we talk about cooking the turkey and the same with the ham. You know, unless it's for sandwiches and you're looking for a big lump of ham, which is also yeah. a delicious thing. Yeah. But a carving fork is just, 
I suppose that like we're well, well, you so can't... safety minded like I mean it just comes naturally to professional chefs because yeah. you know it's bred into you from your training but mm-hmm. it just lets you hold things nice and steady and and, and, it, and it really gives you a, your it's your guiding gauge yeah, or, for sure. or a thin slice as you say like yeah, and yeah. controlled slices instead yeah. of I'll tell you man straight board straight <coughs> knife straight slice two two humdingers essential, for the ho- essential bits of kit essential bits of kit for the whole the whole year brilliant So, Gary, I suppose getting ready for Christmas, the work doesn't start on Christmas Day. I mean, we could start with Christmas Eve, but really we need to talk about a day or two before that, or even the week before that, dare I say it, that you write a bit of a list to what's going on. So how do you shape up to get ready for the magical day of Christmas? Yeah, well, I usually, I like what you just said there. Chefs love lists, like mise en place lists, you know what I mean? And probably the biggest job, which nobody in my house would know anything about anyway, because I'm always (laughs) the one going out doing the buying, is the shopping. At the Chateau in France for the last five years, because of high security, we don't allow any deliveries. So it's ended up making shopping for Christmas Day just feel like, a rosy Tuesday to me it's a day out but it is a significant you know food waste and sustainability and all this crack is a big big talking point nowadays I think a lot of people get overwhelmed with a number because it's probably that one of those days or one of those dinners where you're feeding more than four or five or the usual your own home and you're you're about to attempt much more things on the plate right because you're going with more side orders maybe a dessert some starters so that fair enough and that does add to there being a wee bit more food but I, I find and I was guilty of this myself so anything I'm saying I've made the mistakes myself but I think it's very, very easy to fall into the trap of buying far too much. Uh, on So a shopping list and, and being really, you know, collected and keeping your thoughts tight on that is essential. So a good few days out. I tend to go to Donegal, kind of that last maybe five or six days before Christmas, depending if it falls on a weekend. I'll go up with my older brother. We've always kind of made a habit. And then on the way home, I nearly always would stop in Carrick on Shannon or Longford, then depending where I am, late at night. So I would come back from Donegal around 9, 10, 11 or 12 at night. Tesco or some of those stores are open quite late. Yeah. And, uh, and look, we're not affiliated to any store or whatever, but it's just whatever. At Christmas, thankfully, they're open later. So my first tip on that is to shop late at night. Right, and cool. um, yeah, because they do a restock kind of near the end of the day. So you're going to get replenished shelving yep. for, the, for the most part. And the store is at about ten percent capacity, and it's fast. You know what I mean. So that's what, what's on what's on the plate on Christmas Day. Protein was in my house. It's a traditional house. I do turkey and ham, and I do the ham the old school way that we would have been taught at college. I I boil the ham, trim the fat off it, let it go, kind of just well, it's still warm, like but it's it's rested about a half an hour. Then I take the fat off it. And then I brush it with English mustard. Must be Coleman's English mustard. Well, I'm Dijon. Br- lots of brown sugar, and then I and then I really am pedantic about the lines of clove, right from one bottle, literally straight lines again all the way through, and I completely dress it fully then in whole cloves, stud it with the cloves back into a 200 degree oven until it completely caramelizes and I usually do two of them 
Annette's mommy Bernie, my mother-in-law, they used to always have a tradition. She used to always make the ham sandwiches on, on Christmas Eve. So I always, always make sure that I've got at least one of them done the day before Christmas Eve. So I'll slice that one, bring it up and drop it in her house. She's just up the lane from me. And then the other one is for the Christmas dinner the next day. The turkey I don't touch until Christmas morning. I don't need to. I don't cook it the day before. But I like people walking into the house on Christmas Day and smelling that roast, roast yeah. the roast turkey and smelling the ham again back in. So really the day before Christmas Day is when you're, you should have everything in, I would say. Oh, I. So all your veg is landed, your turkey is there, your ham is there. If you're buying your ham off somebody that you've never bought before, you may need to steep it. So I would think about that now. Great call. Like, I know I buy my ham from the same butcher it's every year. It's not as bad as it used to be. No, it isn't. When, when we were younger, they yeah, used yeah, to, I don't know what, what, what sort of cure, ham, the, yes. the curing that they used to do was, I mean, if you, you sometimes now do get away with it. I should have said that. I do soak them, but again, I don't need to soak it where I get it from. Yeah. I like to soak it a wee bit because I, I just don't want the salt overpowering the sweetness too much. But again, like you say, it could be a disaster if you Yeah, don't. and I think, like, really, Christmas Day dinner is not the day to start trying to new do new dishes or new recipes. You should be doing stuff that you know how to do mm. because we already said you're probably going to be cooking for four, six, eight, ten people. So don't start trying to do new dishes on that day. So your side order should be tried and tested. Your starter should be tried. If you're going to take a little risk anywhere... Maybe it's around dessert, and I'm just saying maybe introducing a new little flavour into something, but I think Christmas Day is about repetition, tradition, and making your life as easy as possible, so ultimately you can spend time having yeah. fun. If you're going to pull a new side out of the bag or a new oh, yeah. potato dish, do a wee sneaky Sunday dinner for yeah, just you yeah, and your yeah. wife or you and your husband or whatever partner. Make it, Throw a stab at something. Sunday lunch is a, is a perfect day. Yeah, exactly. Want it to be a surprise? Just, just make it, even if it's for two, three, four people. Just be like going, do you know what? I'm going to try the candy turnip or I'm going to make the Brussels sprouts. Whatever way you do them, take a wee sneaky stab at them a few weeks out and just put yourself at ease. Christmas Eve for me, the tur- or the ham has to be cooked. Oh, That's right. just something that reminds me of growing up. My father actually would have, would have always glazed and cooked it. So we'd cook it on uh, Christmas Eve morning and then that evening then, as you said, take the back fat off, score it, like kind of fairly evenly you want nice little diamonds and then I'm Dijon so I like to brush the whole thing well with Dijon mustard sprinkle it with brown sugar and then I drizzle it with honey and then I put it into that roasting tray that you spoke about and I put in a bottle of cider the reason why I do that is as the honey and the sugar melts it will drip down into the tray and really to caramelize a a three kilo four kilo ham is going to take you an hour and a half probably and what can happen is the whole house can fill a smoke if all that honey and sugar hits the bottom of the tray and if there's no moisture in there. So I just think a bottle of cider helps for as it melts off. And four layers of tinfoil underneath it as yeah, well exactly. because that is a tray you do not want to be washing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then you're just making sure that you're, you're basting as to every 15 minutes you're scooping up all that moisture and you're putting it back over the ham. So that has to happen on, on Christmas Eve. And then there's apps and the clo- we I stood it with cloves as well. And there's nothing better than a house filled oh. with the aroma of. I mean, that's the smell honey. of Christmas Yankee oh, Candle right Mandel. there. Yeah, you don't <laughs> yeah, even need, yeah, yeah. you don't even need to be wasting thirty five exactly. blips on a Yankee Candle. Just roast the ham and. And then for me, I'll talk exactly how I do the turkey. But I like to take the legs off the turkey. Um, I get a bit cheffy with the turkey. I'm afraid I, I bone out the legs and I stuff the legs and then I roast the crown on its own. Yeah. So 
if you can't do that, your butcher will do it for you. So we'll talk about that when we talk about Christmas Day. But And then for me, it's about getting your Brussels sprouts prepped, any veg, so it's carrot and parsnip, they'll be peeled and chopped oh, Funny up. story on Brussels sprouts, I have to tell you. Yeah, okay. So it was Christmas of 95, and I don't know if we're Christmas the one. Christmas of 95. It was Christmas of 95, because I was at college, I did my leaving in 95. The summer of 95 was the hottest summer ever, but the winter of 95 was mental. The sea was freezing in parts of Bundoran. <laughs> and I remember Pat O'Callaghan, God rest him, he said they brought me into the office and I thought I was in bother, but I was. And then he says, look, the Great Northern Hotel in Bundoran need a couple of good cooks over Christmas if you want the money. Pay was amazing. Compared to what I was used to getting paid, yeah, it was yeah, a lot yeah. of money. So I took my boy, Crazy Joe, my, my best pal in the whole world Crazy Joe from Dunfanny he lives he's a big shot chef now in Florida he comes with me right you know the big black bins used to be around like so they used to use these big black bins like they were clean bins they weren't used yeah, as bins. Yeah. they were used food as bins. vegetable food bins yeah. we'd filled eight of them and this was we started work at like 4am Christmas day before Christmas Eve Christmas Eve Christmas Day and for three days all I've been doing is prepping Brussels sprouts we've eight <laughs> of these large black bins full executive chef walks in and I could see him from a distance he looks at a sprout and it kind of makes a face goes to the next bin randomly takes out a sprout and I was like Oh, oh no <laughs> And I was like Right away I was like I'm going to kill wee Joe He told me how The chef wanted them peeled Right Stitch Anyway up. Drives his boot In the first bin Drives his boot In the next bin And I'm like Oh my god What's going on Called me over And he says Where's the crisscross You didn't next him He didn't next him And I says I asked I asked wee Joe Wee Joe says No need No need sir No need sir <laughs> And I goes Are you sure Joe He goes Hey That's what the man said had to had to redo them all. A whole lot of them. Yeah, the whole lot of them. Oh. It was the worst fucking Christmas of my life. <laughs> but we had a wild crack as well. I give Joe an awful trimming after that. To to get back to Christmas Eve, you've got your ham glazed, you've got your sprouts peeled and exed. There I say. X the sprouts. X the sprouts if you're not shredding them. Yeah. And then you've got um whatever veg you're having. So if you're doing a cauliflower mornay or if you're doing something with broccoli. I would be blanching the broccoli if I was putting broccoli down. I mean, it depends what your family like to eat, right? But um, I'm a big fan of a carrot and parsnip crush. And I like, uh, obviously, roasted potatoes. And we do gratin potatoes as well. I don't bother with mash. Um, stuffing. No mash Christmas Day? No, I don't do mash. Okay. Uh, and the reason being is that not everybody eats it. And then I just find every, gratin potatoes is an absolute must. So a classic gratin do for more. So roast potatoes is what um, yeah. my wife and kids really like. And uh, we Act have, every house is different. Yeah, whatever. And whatever. you know what? That's what I love what about, like. I really yeah. love about Christmas Day is that everybody, there's one thing that's on our plate that I was wondering where you're going to say it, but we do spice beef. So is mm. that it? It's the cork thing. Yeah, I think, I thought it was a Dublin thing. No. It's a Cork thing, yeah. It's a it's a big tradition in Cork, yeah. Yeah, and look, it's a tradition in well in our house growing mm. up, uh, a piece of spiced beef, which is for if you're not from Cork or Dublin, you don't know what it is. And what so. do you eat that with, or where 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 just do you a, eat it? Well, really, it's just a slice of it on the plate with the ham, and it just brings this like it's heavily dusted in clove and other mm. spices and pepper, but it's just that little bit of spice onto the plate. Um, but really, where it comes into its own is in the sandwiches. Yeah, I mean, so you just boil it like you would any piece of uh, braising meat. So it's just boiled and it's already in the in the spice mix. And then there's just a slice of it on there, not too much because it would take over. The other recipe that changes in everybody's house is what way you do your stuffing. So will you sausage meat or no sausage meat? Annette won't eat my stuffing. Her mom, it's the only thing her mommy does. She no says way, my stuffing shit. <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> straight up, she says not. not. Boy, what's I, I think about her mum's stuff in is shocking. Oh my god, yeah. you're throwing that out there. Oh no. And like, it's just the worst thing I've ever tasted. Really, what's she do that? Yeah. What? I don't know. I I added one <gasps> year. I added what's that? Ten years now. I've I've been. I took one taste of it. Ten. What's Christ, so, What's wrong with it? Christmas Day, 2013, <laughs> was her first Christmas in her house. I don't know what's in it, and. Uh, my stuff in is beautiful. I mean, it's of course. I, well, it, I think it's nice. I'm sure you would think the same. <laughs> yeah, something yeah. wrong with Annette. But she grew up with her mommy stuffing, and we were due to alternate dinners. But the first year that we moved out, kind of near where Annette's parents are, Bernie says, "Look, I'll do it next year." And halfway through the dinner, she says, "I'm never, I'm never cooking. This, I'm coming here. Yeah, I'm never yeah. cooking dinner again." Yeah, yeah. And yeah. that was the end of that. We have a lovely tradition that I got from a, a lovely family that were regulars in my restaurant in Boston, and I make a French Canadian meat pie called the Toutier. Have you ever heard of it? No? Um, uh, a Toutier. And yeah. he's slagging me for duffing my potato. Go on. Edu- a, it, educate the masses. What's a Toutier? So it's 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 a meat pie. It's a French-Canadian meat pie, right? That Pat Saya, she's a brilliant cook. She's the, the mother-in-law of, of a great friend of mine, Jason uh, Samba, as all his pals yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. Samba's wife, Heather, and her mum, Italian-Americans, amazing cook, and her granny, and mum and then granny. This recipe's been passed down for generations. Come on, and it was, what is it? What is it? It's a meat know. pie. It's it's basically a mixture of pork mince, beef mince, and you you cook the pork mince, the beef mince. There's celery salt in there. There's onion salt in there. Nutmeg, cinnamon powder, clove powder, and then your binder is mashed potato, like an unseasoned mashed potato. So you retain a little bit of the fat from cooking the minced pork and the minced beef. You add your spices. Obviously, as you get a bit of color in the meat, take out the excess fat, add in the potato, and then you feed back in a tiny bit of the fat just until you'll know and I'll know that you've got a slight little bit of moisture to it. And then you just have a basic short crust pastry, like a savory short crust pastry. You line a roasting tin or a little nine-inch deep tin pastry in, fill it with your cooked pie mixture, put a lid on it, in the fridge, take it out, glaze of just egg yolk and a little splash of milk. It's like a terrine almost. And yeah, and then it's well, no, it is a pie. It is soft. Okay. If you if you imagine a, a what do you call that like pastry? Cornish, like pasty, a Cornish pasty. Only it's it's not as wet as a Cornish pasty, yeah. but it it's very very similar. If you Google my name and two because I wrote for the Irish Times and I did it around Christmas. The recipe's there. I'm telling you now, and you bake this pie, and well, you serve it with Heinz ketchup. You serve it with a big dollop of ketchup of your choice. And where do you eat it? it is it a starter is, or what? We, no, we just eat it on its own with a drink. So Pat and Samba and their family, they only make it at Christmas Eve every year. They would have it after Mass, Christmas Eve, and I followed on the tradition. It's about 20 years now I'm doing it. Sounds uh, really good. Christmas Eve as well. It is exceptional. And everybody okay. looks forward to it, you know. So come here, we're, let's get back to the stuff. And Are you a sausage meat or no sausage no, meat? No, Annette's mum put sausage meat in it, yeah. But for me, loads of onions and a little bit of thyme, not an awful lot. Mostly fresh, curly parsley, Kerrygold butter, loads of onions, sweat the onions almost like without colour, getting really, really, almost poaching them in, in, yeah. in the butter mm-hmm. with a small bit of thyme and, a, and with tiniest, tiniest little bit of lemon juice and then a really good fresh breadcrumb, some slightly thinner and some quite coarse and then bind it and after binding it then the when it's kind of cooled for about 15 minutes, 
Still warm, but not hot. I'll add freshly chopped parsley. It's, that's all I put into it. And then how do you reheat? I would reheat that then. Just I put it in a casserole dish and I have tin foil over the top of it. And I put it in for the last half hour of the turkey. You don't stuff the turkey? No. Okay. No. no. Yeah, so I do two stuffings. One of them is similar to what you do, loads of onion, thyme, I like fresh sage, so fresh sage, and then in butter, seasoned well, and a stuffing is something that will take seasoning, so you have to keep tasting it and seasoning it, as you know. And then I like to, again, into a casserole dish, uh, and then roast it. I don't like to put tin foil on it, because my lot like, like crispy bits, yeah. Denise does in particular, my wife loves that real caramelised edge on potatoes or on stuffing or anything. And then I make another one, controversially, you know, you probably give out about this one, but... Uh, with sausage meat and I like sage and apricot and onion. No, I like I like the sound yeah, of that. I like yeah. the little bit of fruit and then that one I put into the neck of the turkey. So mm. you've I've already told you I take the legs off and then I put this sausage stuffing at the neck of the turkey mm. and then up under the skin a sage butter. Well, I was going to say sometimes I've into the stuffing. It's the only thing I'd stuff is the skin yeah, and I yeah. do sometimes. I, look, Annette and them kind of rule the roost. First year I got a wee bit <laughs> funky then, monkey. I give them what they like. You know what I mean. You know I put this sage, a sage butter underneath the the breast. skin, and you completely massage it all the way over the breast, all the way down both sides. It's fantastic. So while we're saying that and we're talking about Christmas Eve, that's something that could be done on Christmas Eve and get yeah. Like and what you're really trying to do, and what I would urge anybody listening, get as much done on Christmas Eve and the day before. So the twenty third. And the 24th is where the work is happening. And the 25th is just bringing it all together. And Gary, you used the word earlier that we use in kitchens all the time, mise en place, which is French kitchen terminology, and it means everything in place. So if you want your Christmas day to be miserable, sit in your arse on, on the 23rd and 24th. Yeah. If you want to have a nice day where you can enjoy a glass of bubbles or a mulled wine or whatever it is that you, you drink with everybody else, then do the work on the previous. Oh, yeah. Days. I mean, like, you know, without sounding egotistical, like we'd be fairly nifty compared to a, yeah, a yeah, yeah. lot of regular people that do different things for work on Christmas Day. But if if I wasn't in good shape and me's on place on Christmas morning, Stress. I'm having a horrible yeah, yeah, like yeah, yeah. nine, eight, nine a.m. until three o'clock. I want to be able to have a wee bit of time to play with the kids as well. Yep. Sporadically, they're coming over with Santi's toys in between. You want to be in a headspace that you can walk away play for them with them for a wee while and so on and so forth a big big time saver for me I feel because we I do so many side dishes I know you don't do the mash but you still do all the other potatoes and Dauphinois takes up a lot of yeah. a decent amount of potatoes as I peel all the oh, potatoes yeah. Mom, you gotta have abs it probably went without saying but I'll say it is the sprouts, whatever way you're... What I do with the sprouts is I blanch and refresh them. Yeah. I don't snick them. I actually cut them in half. Okay. I find Brussels sprouts are really dense. And the reason why they're always maybe not that liked is, like, unlike a lot of other green vegetables, you need to cook them nearly too long uh, to retain the colour. Blanch and refresh to do that. Crisscrossing. What does mean, Gary? Well, blanches, you're basically dropping them into boiling water and then you're straight into iced water. Boiling salted water, you'll drop green vegetables into it. Got to have a bowl of iced water, ice cold water sitting ready. As soon as the veg is at the stage where you're happy that it's cooked or just, just almost cooked, you drop it and it bursts out the chlorophyll. And actually, 
it'll do two things. You're blanching, refreshing, you're preparing. So the next day, then you're only you're only reheating that veg really quickly. But you will never, ever, ever get a bright green color on, on a green vegetable unless you do the blanch and refresh method. You just won't. You'll particularly see this one launch too, haricot vert, green beans, or... Um, Petty paws, like green peas or whatever, and always blanch and refresh. I split my sprouts in half simply because they just cook that wee bit quicker. The carrots, I might sometimes cook if I'm if I'm in good good shape. I do a candied turnip, and I sometimes cook that on Christmas Eve. I basically take one head of turnip. It'll do about eight or nine people easily. I do a full pound of butter, sliced right over. I completely cover the little roasting tray with a pound of butter and then I completely drizzle about a quarter of a jar of honey all the way over it and white pepper all over that that's it that's all it needs put it in the oven at 180 degrees for about 45 to 50 minutes try not to mix it if you cook it like that it might sound like a lot of butter and it is a lot of butter right it's like, but it, like a fondant but, but, really. but if you imagine yeah if you imagine I dice up the turnip small if you imagine you're eating a bag of chips you're not eating all the oil that's in the fryer and I want, you need to think the same thing whenever well it's true people think oh my god it's all the butter well you're not eating that that's the cooking medium yep. for it you will struggle to eat a turnip a nicer way than this a candy turnip is just unbelievable and then I always roast carrots Nettie likes them roasted so I peel them top tail them big chunks nice little bit of a spice blend nothing whatever's there there's always some sort of wee funky packets uh, or jars of powders in the in this larder room cover them with that and I roast them and if I don't then I just do that on, on Christmas Day but it is handy to get a couple right, of them so out big of the recap way. we've got our whatever you're doing with your turkey get it ready to go right so in my house it's the crown you're roasting the turkey whole oh, turkey whole yeah so the ham is glazed your veg is all prepped your potatoes are peeled if you're doing green veg you're going to be blanching that and then are you a fresh cranberry sauce or are you a jar of cranberry sauce I make it yeah, I make it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that, well, you got to make that then on Christmas. Yeah, so I'm going to give you a quick it. recipe for cranberry sauce. So for me, it's a packet of cranberries, is which is enough, which is for any family. I think they're like 200 gram bags. Yeah. Into a small pot with the juice and zest of a of a clementine, and then I go a little nip of brandy, a spoonful of brown sugar, and one cinnamon quill. Um, and then you just pop it onto the stove with a lid, bring it up to the boil. As soon as it's, you'll hear them, they start to pop a little bit. Take the lid off, lower the temperature, and you're going to just cook it until you get a jam consistency. And when I when it's finished then, when you taste it, I like to taste a little bit of alcohol. So sometimes I put another little nip of brandy in, or port, or sherry. Grand like that, just a little bit of, and I think that's what's going to elevate it away from being a jar of cranberry sauce. A jar of cranberry sauce is grand, but this mm. once you make this, You'll never buy a jar. You'll again. never buy a jar again, yeah. That all sounds lovely to me, yeah. So we won't confuse anybody. We'll yeah, any, I wouldn't look. do it much different anyway. Yeah, and then uh, like you, you don't have to do that on Christmas Eve. You can do that now if you want. Yeah. Just get it into a little sterilised jar, stick it into the fridge, and I promise you that's going to come out when the sambos are happening. You're, yeah. That's going to come into its own then. And then the other thing I suppose that I would attack on Christmas Eve, more so than the day before, would be the desserts. So we make a, a trifle every year I used to make a traditional trifle but in the past I've been doing a good few years now as a panettone mm. so instead of sponge I use a panettone which is that wonderful brioche uh, Italian, Italian cake yeah. and you just cut it up and then 
lashings of sherry and a nice jelly and I just use a, a one of like the shivers yeah, jelly or yeah, whatever yeah. Yeah, yeah. and I just put a bit of fruit into it always always make sure that the fruit is if you're not I just use tinned fruit but if you're not going to and never ever do what this bollocks did <laughs> one year and what? I got fancy with trifle and what did I do put pineapple I, in it and I it did you made the and I'm not going to lie it ha- it's a long long time ago Soup. But I never, I never did that little science experiment at school. Doesn't set that whatever sure. enzyme is in pineapple eats won't gelatin. It. Yeah, won't set it. Doesn't set unless you blanch it. Yeah, if you cook it in a stock syrup, but you can yeah. put it in. But anyway, now, did you learn that at school, or did you do what I do and try to put pineapple? I don't exactly what you done. <laughs> Learned it the hard right. way. And the other thing that I do as well is uh, I use a pack of custard for my trifle except I just put some uh, whipped cream into it so that kind of mm. cheats it into it being a bit more delicious mm. and a little bit of vanilla um, and I also put a ma- bit of mascarpone in it so that really brings yeah. it into that Italian feel and then and you top it with Cabri's Flake I like those cherries you know those uh, oh, yeah, really? You know, yeah, glassy yeah. cherries? not the glassy ones you know the Maraschino. ones that are in Kirsch yeah Maraschino I mean like so that nearly has a bit of a we grew up in the same house brother oh really? we really did because <laughs> there's no if I do anything other than the shivers jelly and the way that everybody had it growing up the birds custard as thick as myself that you've got those layers and that's just what I do a mascarpone and double cream yeah, and then I top it with like Cadbury's flank at the end but I just do it the way the old boy and the old doll made like it, it whenever yeah, I yeah. was growing up and that's Daddy Mickey he's a quiet man it's the only thing he ever asked for he's like oh I wouldn't mind some trifle so I make it the way that Mammy would have made yeah, it yeah my, my mum makes up. it as well and yeah. the only difference is now is that I use a panettone and it's just really yeah. it just gets a bit more well I make an mess as well because we Ollie loves an eating mess and if I make it a la minute like so I've all the bits and pieces there like the, the berries the meringue I have a lovely sweetened cream already done and uh, and what I do is I layer it with Viennetta you know you I mean, love Viennetta man dude I'm <laughs> telling you now right outside I've probably said this to you before the Maserati Gran Turismo is probably the nicest sounding engine and the nicest sound in the history of noise right but a spoon going through the chocolate layers in a Viennetta <laughs> is a very close second. My young fella Zach loves a banoffee. So uh, me and George May, uh, my daughter, we make the, the desserts on uh, Christmas Eve and it's yeah. had to turn it into a bit of tradition now. Uh, yeah, Cora loves really a like sticky it. toffee pudding, which I can I make a fairly na- nice one of those now. But and really the desserts come into their own on Stevens' Day and the yeah. day after, right? Because we yeah. all eat too much and then yeah. you have a dessert, of course you do on Christmas Day. But it's I, all about the dinner really, yeah. I mean, I, people are taking a dessert but they're just... They're bent over from yeah, exactly. stuff in their feet. And that's the way it should be on Christmas Day. So that wraps up Christmas Eve, I'd say. Last Can thing I, I want to just throw in there is okay. to, to think about on Christmas Eve is the alcohol. So like... A good mulled wine. Yeah, whatever you're drinking, mm. I think, is it, where does it go, right? Because like your fridge space is paramount. So you have to make sure your proteins are landing in the fridge. Yeah. So like, you know, if you're drinking white wine and you like your white wine chilled and you live in Ireland. Garage. Out the back. Yeah, or the yeah, boot yeah. of your car. Yeah, get it outside. Brilliant. And just once it's under lock and key. We have a lot of larger drinkers on uh, myself included and uh, my wife's dad and her brother. So the beer is outside. It's definitely not getting into a fridge. And then if I'm, if I've, 
if for some reason it's not going to be cold enough, then it's a bag of ice into a bucket out in the back garden uh, on Christmas morning. And keep your fridge for the food. So yeah. remember, you need to get a trifle into the fridge. You need to get a, a cheesecake or a banoffee or if you're making two desserts. And then you have to, have to, have to put your turkey in the fridge. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and it's on the bottom shelf, away from everything. And that's not to bore everybody, but that's just to make sure that nothing's going to drip down onto the cooked all ready to eat foods and then all the veg and everything really can go out into your garage or into your shed or you know and then with your potatoes after you peel them just throw them into some water into a pot and then you're going to cook them on the morning I would say Um, and that's really Christmas Eve ready to go and I fill my big pots and put them in the garage yeah exactly perfect perfect. them with cold water and And I would also say when it comes to whatever wine or whatever drink you're having don't complicate it choose something that you know that everybody's going to drink so whatever white and whatever red and uh, I love a glass of champagne on Christmas day it's the oh, one time as you know I do basically <laughs> up in a way every Christmas is yeah, tradition I, we're, we're, a, we're a Bollinger house so I mean yeah. I do a lot of love work Bollinger, as you know with yeah. Bolly so uh, we have to have a glass of Bolly on Christmas morning mm. so it's just something that I look forward to and it's a real treat same as that yeah, so there you go. That's your drink sorted, your, uh, what you're doing, your shopping list is done, it's all in. So then we're going to have to attack Christmas Day next, I suppose. Dishing it out with Gary O'Hanlon and Gareth Mullins, a Go Loud original podcast. Proudly sponsored by Cully and Sully. Now is the perfect time to dig into a Cully and Sully risotto. Go Loud. Sounds better with us. Dishing It Out with Gary O'Hanlon and Gareth Mullins. A Go Loud original podcast. Cully and Sully squashed veggie soup is in season and the perfect warming meal. Go Loud. Sounds better with us. Okay, so we have Christmas Eve boxed off and now we're into Christmas Day. So one thing I think that I'm going to also talk about is stuff that you can have in the freezer which will do you over the Christmas. And that's really where... Little canapes and starter ideas. We're not huge starters on Christmas Day fans, but we definitely have people dropping in to see us over that whole week. And that's where the freezer is your friend. So I'm going to give you two must-haves in the freezer that you're going to make. Not on Christmas Day, but my first one is a black pudding sausage roll. So I have these on the menu in the marker and they've been on there since the hotel has opened. So it's just your favourite black pudding, whichever one it is. We're using the smoked black pudding at the moment down the hotel from uh, Jack McCarthy. So... It's that with equal parts black pudding to equal parts sausage meat into a bowl. If you like herbs, you can throw a bit of thyme and uh, sage in there, mix it together and then chop ball puff pastry and you just put your mix into a piping bag. You pipe it along, brush it with egg yolk, roll it over, basically made a sausage roll. There's loads of these recipes up on my Instagram. Then freeze them. Then just, just before they've frozen, so they've been in the freezer for about an hour, you repeat that process until all your, all your mix is gone and all your pastry is gone, and then cut them into one-inch size pieces. Brush them with a little bit of egg wash and sprinkle a few sesame seeds on them and pop them into the freezer. And if you've got friends dropping into you over Christmas, all you have to do is take them out onto a tray, into a preheated oven at 180 degrees, and serve them with some of that cranberry sauce that I told you. And they're a perfect little snack to have. The other one I'm going to give you, again, is puff pastry, and they're called cheese straws. So the easiest thing in the world to make, you just lay out your puff pastry, brush it really well with um, egg wash, and then you're going to grate parmesan really. And if you're using Gruyere, the little tip that Gary gave you a few weeks ago, getting yourself a microplane so you don't want big chunks of cheese it's really fine grated cheese over the top 
little bit of cayenne pepper and some salt and then you're going to cut it into fingers so use your baby finger as the as the guides and then you just twist and press onto a tray pop them into a fridge and then you're going to pop them into the freezer sorry so they're going to freeze hard and then your guests arrive or some people come over to the house preheat your oven to 180 degrees and bake off those cheese straws and i'm telling you there's nothing better and it's much be better than a box of Pringles, or even though there's nothing wrong with that. Um, and they're two really handy little snacks to have in your freezer when people are coming over. Guys, what have you got? Yeah, well, I would have went with a sausage roll as well. You know, yeah, really, so, aren't they? Yeah, sausage rolls are just beautiful with a black pudding. Again, I'm I'm a purist with a sausage roll, but maybe for those that are vegetarian, maybe I'll give you one. And I'm not; it's not really my forte now, but like a a maple roasted sweet potato if you make a really good sweet potato mash and um and have a little bit of toasted pine nuts so you've scooped out your sweet potato you've had a little bit of maple syrup on them as as they're roasting you you mash that up kind of as you're mashing it ha have the sweet potato in a pot so put your potato into a pot on a low heat we call that teaming in Donegal or team the potato to release as much moisture out of them as possible you're mashing them but you're sort of just using the back of a spoon a wooden spoon really you're crushing them as opposed to mashing them get as much moisture out of it as possible then into a bowl some white pepper a little bit of toasted pine nut and um, and then repeat nearly what Gareth said then with the just roll pre-bought puff pastry egg wash that roll it over and uh, press and pressing it in and then egg wash it and the only key thing i would tell you when it comes to sausage rolls is make sure that you puncture the top off them after you egg wash because if you puncture them and then egg wash them all you're going to do is seal in the hole and you get them all sort of funky shapes i like them to keep their their nice shape you don't want basically you want to be able to release the air and keep them nice and neat and tidy and a little maple roasted sweet potato pine nut sausage roll is lovely as well or plain pork um it was a go-to for me cookies are another one like a brown sugar chocolate chip cookie if you bake a couple of little trays of cookies or just have your cookie dough made and cut out and have them on the tray you can lift them out pre-rolled let them sit out at room temperature for about 40 minutes and they'll sit down or just go straight into the freezer if you have them already portioned out perfectly you can cook them from the freezer or the old classic simple prawn cocktail all you got to do is put the prawns into a little sieve a little uh chinese cap sieve and run them under cold water it defrosts them in about three four minutes and uh, make a little quick mario rose sauce and basically an old mario rose sauce is a couple of heap depends on how much you're making like but about two tablespoons of mayonnaise per per person say and maybe a one teaspoon or two teaspoons per tablespoon of mayonnaise of, of Heinz ketchup decent little hit of Tabasco sauce again to your own like and you can taste there I like a nice little bit of residual heat so a decent wee bit of Tabasco sauce a good splash of Worcester sauce as well some white pepper whisk it up a few purists might say a splash of sherry but I've never really liked that I like to try a little tiniest little bit of brandy brandy I was going to say yeah brandy or sherry brandy if anything uh, I don't bother with the alcohol but I can appreciate the brandy going in there and 
nice, good, crisp lettuce. So it's got to be an iceberg lettuce for me. Romaine isn't too bad either. But again, no need to get fancy. Iceberg lettuce. Cut up quite well. Don't chiffon at it. I always remember a big conversation with Marco Pierre White about this. He's famous and all his restaurants have a prawn cocktail. And he says it's essential that they're diced up pieces of iceberg and not shredded because it catches the prawn, mm. catches the sauce, and it does make sense. Nice big wedge of lemon. Put a handful of prawns on top of the the lemon and uh, top, it with, on top it with a I don't top it with a Mario Rose sauce and old school a bit of paprika. Make it funky, yeah. some smoked paprika if you want, and a lemon wedge. A little prawn cocktail is lovely. I say that because that's a mammy used to get you me really to make did her grow up in the same house. Yeah, mommy loved the prawn cocktail and and prawn prawns were expensive. Like they weren't something we were buying all the time. And uh back in the eighties growing up, you know what I mean? It was a nice week. I treat. still love a prawn cocktail. Yeah. I'd say it's probably up there at one of my favourite starters of all time. Yeah, and I'm not That's a mad a I'm not a mad fan of prawns or whatever, but I do I just I always loved that mommy when I started you know, going to culinary college and that she just asked me to do that for her on Christmas Day and I loved it. You well, know what I mean? One of the best starters I've eaten in the past three or four years was up in Virginia Park Lodge and Rich Richard Cook yeah. a few years ago and we were up there for a Euro Talk event and he done a lobster and prawn cocktail as the starter. I can still taste them. Yeah. And it was as, it was exactly what you just said. Yeah. But the the Mary Rose was perfectly seasoned, the lobster was perfectly cooked. But on Christmas yeah. Day and that's a lovely way. And if you wanted a different way of doing the prawn cocktail, the American style cocktail sauce is really, really nice as well. And that's basically a tomato ketchup based sauce. Again, you add a decent amount of lemon juice to your ketchup. Horseradish cream then. Loads of horseradish goes into it. Juice of a lemon. And uh, that's it. And you're basically mixing that up. It's basically a really, it's a horseradish infused ketchup sauce really. But if you're using the larger langoustines for that or the larger prawns for that that's that's really nice and and any other starters that are a must i love a soup you know what i mean like an oven roasted sweet potato and ginger i'm going to sweet potato again i actually am not mad about sweet potato but a roasted sweet potato and ginger soup is really nice we don't eat starters um annette annette or our family never liked a starter they want to be able to eat they would prefer an extra side or two and not have anything. But as far as people coming over, I have this compote that I make. I've been making it for about 20 plus years now. And it's an apricot, date, and organic blueberry compote. I make it just off the top of my head. Like I, I nearly always make it in kilo packets like for the chateau or, or what have you. But in a nutshell, it's diced up dried apricot, diced up medjool dates, um, a decent amount of, of brown sugar, a little bit of white sugar and brown sugar. And then Harvey's Bristol Cream Sherry, it must be. Grand Marnier goes in there as well. And um, I boil that up then like you did with your cranberry jam. Yeah. And what I do is I buy frozen blueberries, okay? And for the simple reason is it does two things. It's whenever you're making any jam like that or any compote like that, whenever you get to the point, I don't really measure anything, but I've been making it so long, I have it all down to like an eye and touch and I reduce the water and I use the watermark as my gauge. It goes down a certain level. I know like anybody that makes jam has their own wee way of doing it. But you'll put in a spoon and you coat the back of a spoon and sit, sit the spoon into the freezer for like a minute. Take it out, run your finger through it. And once you feel that you've got that syrupy texture, you know what's You're bang on. on. I take it out then. I use a wee stick blender, which is my gadget of the week. Come back a couple of weeks. In with a stick blender and then I blend it. 
And you said something really interesting on your Christmas Eve. I love to taste that little bit of alcohol. So once I've blended my apricot and dates in the alcohol jammy solution, I now open the, the frozen blueberries, put in about two or 300 grams of blueberries. It's going to immediately chill down my jam. I start to fold that through right away. And because it's hot, some of the blueberries will, will burst and they'll blend in right into the compote or the jam. Others will stay whole as it cools quite quickly. They'll stay whole. So I've now got a wee bit of texture. And they I, just put the thumb over the Grand Marnier and I feed back in the Drambouille and Grand Marnier. The Drambouille is the other alcohol. So sherry, Drambouille, Grand Marnier and a little splash of each of the three of them. Fold it all up and I serve that with a cheese board. So always a blue cheese, always then like a, a Gruyere or a heart. used to be Glee Brehan. God rest of David. Now he's not with us anymore. It was an Irish style Gruyere right. cheese that was made in the in the Slane Valley, over in Dunleer. I just it, the the greatest cheese ever made. A cheddar, if you can get Tom Burgess's cheddar, Colatin cheddar, Colatin, yeah, 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 Colatin yeah, yeah. cheddar, cashew blue or crozier blue cheese, and then a white a white cheese. I'm not mad about goat no, cheese no. on a. I don't like a soft cheese on a cheese board really. And uh, so those three, uh, semi. Soft or hard cheese, or whatever you want to call them. Christmas time, you just have so much more cheese in your fridge, right? Yeah. It's just, it's a real perfect thing to take out when people are coming and on. I've, and are you familiar with little pepper juice peppers, little peak yeah, peppers? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you have a few of them and then water biscuits, but I think that I suppose what will elevate, elevate your cheese boards, besides choosing amazing Irish cheese, is making a compote like you've just given a wonderful description of one there and having a cranberry jam. I do a one similar to that with fig and shallots. Yeah. Um, and a little bit of white wine vinegar. Um, and having that fig chutney in the fridge is like an absolute no-brainer. Going back to your store-bought puff pastry, just roll, like that fig and onion, right? If you take out that puff pastry, yeah, yeah. puncture the base of it, use it, imagine a pizza in your head, you put that fig and onion like jam on the, on the base of that puff pastry and then dotted all the way across with some pieces of goat's cheese yep. and you bake that in the oven, take it out, glaze the outside of it, you'll have the most beautiful fig and goat's cheese tartlet. And, and St. Tola is the one I'm going to give a shout oh, out for cheese here. Unbelievable. Strong's cheese is just incredible. It's so versatile. Starters. Were you at the were you at the lunch? I mean, the 20th anniversary of St. Tola goes cheese. It was the 23rd of June. One of my best friends died that day, Manus Kelly, sadly. Gareth and I had a lunch in a goat shed in St. Tola. I brought I brought Cora and Ollie with me that day. Goats were being born around us as we were having lunch. Remember what Sunil, Sunil did his goats on toast, which is one of his most famous dishes. He cooked goat. It was only afterwards I thought it was a bit cannibalistic <laughs> to be eating goat and the poor goats being born alongside us. I don't know if you've ever been in a goat uh, shed. Like, but there was about 10 goats born as we I, were having lunch. I have a really cool photograph of uh, George May holding it, like a brand new little baby goat. So really the, the tips for canapes and starters, it's like getting a bit of gear into your freezer, making a few little things that will elevate your cheese board. So some chutneys, uh, any types of little jams, relishes. And that really is, it, it comes second nature to chefs because we are always looking for stuff to cut across the fatness, the fattiness of cheese. Um, and it's anything that's nice and sharp or piquant. So the little peppers is a good show. 
cornichons or any of those little pickled yeah. onions or anything and then obviously crackers are, are yeah and keep an eye on my instagram as well i'm not as good as gareth on the recipe stuff but i got i gotta be honest i've i've never made i've never made that compote for just the home so what i'm gonna do over the next week or so is i'm gonna make it properly and i'll measure it, it all out instagram, and i'll man. stick it up because i'll tell you now if, if i jarred that that chutney i mean uh, it sounds always sounds egotistical when you say you jar something that you make yourself dishing it out with gary o'hanlon and gareth mullins a go loud original podcast cully and sully squashed veggie soup is in season and the perfect warming meal go loud sounds better with us Okay, so now we've got all that done, right? We've done our we've done our Christmas Eve, we've done our uh, little starters and bits and pieces when friends are coming over. So maybe can be called the star of the show. What about the side orders? Now let's try and rattle through these nice and quick. So what are you going for? Well, side orders are what makes Christmas Day. Big time. So there's a lot of don't judge me now, a lot of potatoes and a lot of sides <laughs> going on here, right? So and this is no judgment. No judgment here. There's mashed potato. There's a Dauphin S, as they used to call it in the Razapena. It's There's no name in this dish, but I'll tell you what the potato dish is in a while. So there's the Dauphin S from the Razapena, roasties. Of course. And there's my smoky bacon, truffled Brussels sprouts, right? Candied, no, sweet, go on. roast carrot, as I mentioned. And marrow fat peas, old school, but they're just for me. Nobody else eats them. I Still do marrow fats? I... Love marrow <laughs> fat peas, and they gotta be not fully cooked. Either. You gotta eat them just before they're kind of cooked. Do you know what I mean? I haven't had them, and I couldn't tell you. It must it, be twenty two years. or three years ago. Then do you get ready. a little? Uh, what do you put in it? Is well, it, we never used the tablet. I don't even know what it's for. Is it bacon powder or something? Do you know, mommy? I stole it from the <laughs> counter one time when I was a kid, and she got a good laugh at it. She goes, "I can't wait so till he tries and eats this." No, I thought it was a sweet. <laughs> I tried to eat it, and she goes, "That's the stuff for you, you greedy so and so." Do you know what I mean? I just throw that in the bin. I don't know what it's for. I don't even really know anything about marrowfat peas. What are they? Where did they come from? The old boy used to cook them. We only ever had them on Christmas Day. The old boy would be taking out spoonfuls off them before they'd be ready. Maybe I'm going to try them. Ah, man. They're amazing. They're unbelievable. Really? Oh, Jesus, I love them. So real quick (laughs) on the Brussels sprouts. So we blanched them on Christmas Eve, right? I just heat a pan, tiny little bit of oil, and I start rendering diced up smoked streaky bacon okay get a nice good when the when the bacon is almost browned and re- fat is rendered add in a decent amount of of onion then chopped onion white pepper no salt really at this stage then i deglaze with a little splash of white wine add in some cream bring that to the board and reduce it almost by half so it's not fully reduced and then I add a couple of decent little, maybe like a half a teaspoon or a teaspoon of a good quality truffle oil. The best truffle oil I've ever found has been in Lidl. They do a truffle oil that's absolutely beautiful. So it is. Chefs don't really like truffle oil. They kind of turn their nose up at truffle oil, and that's grand. It's it's not to replace truffles. I just like, yeah, yeah. I actually like the flavor of the truffle oil that you find in Lidl. And with a decent splash of truffle oil, feed back in my blanched and refreshed Brussels sprouts. Toss that in the cream sauce. Taste, taste, taste. I usually just have to add a little bit of white pepper now to that. A decent amount of microplane, a good 70, 80 grams of Parmesan cheese. I then put that into a little roasting tray a little ceramic roasted tray that I have completely covered again with parmesan and a decent amount of panko breadcrumbs 
and into an oven 200 degrees to get a crusty parmesan crust on that. That's how I serve my Brussels sprouts. So I'm, I'm a traditionist when it comes to Brussels sprouts. So I just like to peel them, X them. And you said it earlier on, and I know there's a, there's a bit of a debate, I reckon, about Brussels sprouts. Whether you eat them slightly al dente, for me, you need to cook them. Yeah. I have to cook them. Yeah. So uh, they're just cooked through, and I just simply like to toss them in a little bit of butter. It's the only thing I probably don't mess around with too much. The problem there is you're now tasting them. Yeah. My I, way, you don't have to taste them. <laughs> yeah, I actually like them. Not, you know, so many people don't like them. And you know what? It's only uh, not everybody at the table eats them, but they really remind me of growing up like we always had Brussels sprouts my dad used to cook them in the ham water in the ham stock and I do the same That's they're blanched and then I put them in there and I I overcooked them slightly yeah. just because that's the way I like them and yeah. uh, and really I think under people that really understand food is about doing stuff that you like and like when you figure that out as a, you leave your ego at the door and you yeah. just do things the way that you're getting the most amount of flavour. You do them the way your mommy and daddy yeah, did it because that's really for yeah. that day, right? Because and so that's the Brussels sprout. So you're going all, you're going chefy, man. You've played no, buffalo well, oil and parm and all sorts. I made well, that. I made that the first year. Sounds good. Bernetti's family, do it. whatever. I know, no, and then, I'm telling you now. <laughs> you, sounds good, man. I actually do like them like that. I don't mind the Brussels sprout as well. Actually, I like them with a wee bit of salt or whatever. I'm gonna give you one more just because I have them on the menu in Forbes Street at the moment, and they're flying out. So we blanched them and then we caramelized them in a pan and a little bit of butter, and we finished them with those little sour uh, ch- uh, cranberries. You know the, yeah. the dried ones. So really simple. Toss them through, season them well, they roasted them in the pan. Brussels sprouts are the type of veg that if you're not gonna boil them or do like make a gratin like Gary said, they they really do very well when they're caramelised. Yeah. Um so caramelising them in some butter and then finishing them with a nice little sharp uh jammy um cranberries are fantastic yeah. when you eat them. So three options there for you for Brussels sprouts, right? What's next? Roasties. Yeah, well, I'll, I'm going to give you... I'm not going to do roasties. You do roasties. I'm going to do this stuff in S potato like dish, what? right? There's a name on it. It's the first thing I ever made in the Rosapena kitchen, right? It's just roughly diced up potatoes, Morris Pipers or Roosters, whatever you want, into your roasting tray. I say eight potatoes, right? And For a normal family size or a group of nine or ten or whatever. Eight potatoes, maybe two small white onions, chopped up again, Small doesn't need to be small, just chopped up any kind of a way. Salt, white pepper, about three tomatoes, cored tomatoes, tomatoes, three tomatoes, cored and diced up in on top of the potatoes, and then about seven or eight thick slices of ham, like just the store bought store bought sliced ham that you'd put in a sandwich, diced up sliced ham, about eight or nine slices. Dice them up, mix it all up, decent amount of fine sea salt and a good amount of white pepper, ground white pepper. Mix it really, really well in your in your little roasting tray and then just pour in, pour in cream. So bring up the cream until it's just at the level at the top of, of the potatoes. You don't want it to be completely submerged. You just want it that it comes up. Leave it for about five minutes because sometimes the cream, you'll think it's up there, but it when it settles, give it a few minutes to settle into an oven at 175, 180 degrees for about an hour. Ideal that you don't mix this at all because you want to kind of have your, like the candied swede, you want that layer at the end to sort of be brown. When you're happy that they're cooked, test the potato, put a cocktail stick through the potato. When the potatoes are cooked, the cream will have just naturally reduced itself enough 
Then you want to put a really good, strong, mature cheddar, grated cheddar over the top. Leave it in there for another four minutes, three, four minutes till the cheddar melts. And put a big spoon on it, tablecloth doubled up on the table and just set your little ceramic uh, roasting tray on the cloth and spoon it straight. Serve everything family style. Just have everything in its dishes that you cooked it in Great. or transfer it into it. Don't try to plate 15 plates. Have a big spoon on it. Let everybody feed themselves. But those potatoes, now, one thing I did not say there and it was not a mistake and a lot of people think I make a mistake when I give them that recipe and they add garlic because as a dauphin it's probably outside of the potato. I've never heard of that issue. No. We used to make that in the Rosapel, like boulanger potatoes, whenever lamb would be on the menu. When you wanted to wash pots in the Rosapena in Donegal back in the 90s to get into culinary college, you needed experience. So you, you were responsible for two potato dishes every night and three vegetable dishes every night. You know the old school kitchen yeah. brigade? You washed the pots and you did the veg every single day. And the very first day, the day I turned 15, I worked in the Rosapena, my first day. That's the very first thing I ever cooked in the Rosapena. And I'm not not making it any different to the way the executive chef there, who's my aunt, showed me how to do it. I make it the same way. Right, well, I'll do gratin d'offemois, just seeing as how you've done that one. So gratin d'offemois is a, a simple dish enough but a lot of people get it wrong right so I think or not what you need to do is you need to boil up your cream with a little bit of grated garlic there is some recipes that take the garlic out I think the garlic has to be in there I want to have the clatter of garlic when onion, it's in there no. no onion no no I'm just uh, I'm just garlic and cream into a pot and then you're going to peel your potatoes and it's another kitchen gadget time I'm afraid because the mandolin so you need to slice them that they're the same if you've really good knife skills, of course you can slice them, but I don't think anybody is going to be able to get Knives them. Knives stick in potatoes, very difficult exactly. to slice in the knife. So really, just always use the little guard from uh, that comes with the mandolin. And then you're going to slice the potatoes. So again, like Gary says, they're about seven or eight medium-sized potatoes. And then into the pot that you've boiled the cream, mix them all together. And then you've got your casserole dish or your stob dish that we spoke about a few weeks ago. And you're going to line those garlicky cream dressed potatoes back into that dish. And then any of the excess cream that's in there, pour it in on top. Sometimes you might need a little splash of milk in there just if you find it looks too dry. Um, And then all you're going to do is put a piece of parchment paper, as we'd say a cartouche, which is basically just a piece of parchment paper sitting on top of the potato, pop it into a preheated oven at 180 degrees and you're going to bake it under the under the baking paper for about 40 minutes. Now at this point, you're going to take it out and you'll push your knife into the potato and you'll see there'll be a tiny little bit of resistance there. So now it's time to get rid of that piece of parchment paper and it has to be Gruyere for me on top. I mean, you can use cheddar if you want and parmesan, but if you want a, like a really delicious crust on top, it's Gruyere cheese and then you're going to pop it back into the oven for another 30 minutes for me, a gratin potato should have no resistance in the potato. Your knife should fall into it, fall straight through. The other thing that I missed, and you, you, we've already said it, but salt and pepper, you'll be surprised how much seasoning a, a gratin potato will take because of the starch that's in there. And that's it. And that would be something that I would make in the morning and then I just have it all ready to go and then it just goes to the table. I'm the same. I, the only difference is I put the, we put the, 
or I put the protein on the plate. Everything else is in the middle of the table, but the sliced turkey, ham stuff, and give you another little garnish that goes on as well later on. But yeah. that's my grat ham. Yeah. And Gareth said something there really interesting, and I, and I want to highlight it, right? Because, again, it's a mistake that I think a lot of restaurants, even our hotels do with the gratin is... You added the sliced potatoes to the to the cream, which meant then whenever you mixed that through or folded it through, seasoned. that every side of the potato was getting the seasoning and the benefit of the cream. You can basically airlock layers of potato. If you were to layer the dish and pour it over, in my instance, because the potatoes were diced, the cream will filter its way all around them. But whenever you have a sliced potato and you were to line up um, a little roasting tray or whatever dish that you're using and then you poured that garlic cream over it the whole centerpiece of those potatoes are not going to get any liquor at all they're not going to get any cooking liquor it's not going to bake you're going to cut into them there's going to be water coming out of them so that that part of it absolutely essential and I mean the lovely. classic the classic recipe has a little bit of grated nutmeg yeah I'm just not into it no, but if fine. you are if you are Hey, right, a bit of nutmeg. Your house, your rules. Yeah, exactly. So that's the that. So we've given you two lovely gratinated potato dishes. Then, so the other one is the roast bud, and then you can do the mash. So for me, a roast potato is peeled, cut into even side pieces, into cold water, brought up to a boil, simmered for not even five minutes and then strained off and then back into that pot again and the technique that Gary spoke about earlier on about the... Uh, Teaming. Yeah. Um, I've actually never heard that expression yeah. before. So what you're just trying to do is evaporate any moisture that's there and you want to chuff the potatoes up so you want them to be a little bit flowery and then back in, sitting in a colander in your sink to let them cool off a little bit and this is the bit that you won't need to be careful but you have to do. So you get a roasting dish into your oven and on Christmas day it has to be goose fat I'm sorry but you yeah. have to buy a jar of goose fat for this and then the goose fat goes in it gets up to 200 220 degrees so it's going to be smoking hot and then you carefully pour those steamed potatoes into the um, boiling hot goose fat and then I don't like to season the potatoes at this point because I feel that when you put salt on them before they've started to go crispy, they tend not to get as crisp. I think it's because it uh, takes out the moisture in the potato and then you pop them in and they're going to roast for 45 minutes to an hour. Like, I don't think you can have a roast potato that's too crispy. No. But you can a have... A little them. bit of soft polenta at that point really Yeah, which helps. works a yeah. treat. Not for me, but like yeah. uh, it does work a treat. Yeah. But then I just roast if you them. if you in that teaming part, whenever you're gently tossing the pot, it's a little bit of you're, you're creating more air air yeah, space yeah. for the steam to get away. But the potatoes rumbling off each other. If you can see that flourness happening, you've nailed it because you've created those little jagged edges that are super dry super dry they're going to be the first edges to catch the goose fat and that is going to give you the polenta is nice but it's a bit sh chefy as well yeah, in and the I sense that exactly. like you know we didn't grow up a polenta and actually it can nearly be too hard then with the polenta parts but if it's just pure potato when you get that really brown crispy texture Jesus is there anything nicer man they're the best thing unbelievable Morris Pipers make unbelievable roasties and unbelievable chips yeah and I use roosters um, and yeah. so do well, roosters as well and that's the Irish but, yeah, yeah yeah and then just 10 minutes 15 minutes before so when they look like they're starting to go really crispy then I take them out I give them a good season with some uh, malden sea salt yeah and then pop them back in and then I would just say when you take them out 
put a spoon or something on your on your countertop and just let them sit up on the side and pull them up away from the fat. Yeah. So let the fat drain down to this one yeah, side of the tray because yeah. there's nothing worse than a really greasy roast potato. No. Even though I'm a big fan of goose fat. It's delicious. Yeah, but you said something very important there as well is your, your tray where your goose fat is in the oven. It's hot, almost the way you would do a Yorkshire pudding. If you add a potato to cold fat, the very first thing it'll do is absorb, drinks the oil, it absorbs the oil. You'll be five minutes into your dinner and then you'll be wondering where the pool of grease is coming from. Good. It's like cooking a chip as well. If the temperature isn't at the absolute optimum temperature, the potato will soak in the oil. doesn't matter what you do with it then thereafter. After it'll filter its way back out of it after you start eating it. They're all simple little steps, but they're essential little steps. You right. know what I mean? So Give listen, listen up. <laughs> Give us your mashed potato. Mashed potato, then again, rooster, nearly always roosters that, that available are Morris Pipers, but it doesn't really matter to me, but it's one or the other that I get. Boil them from cold water is always essential. Try to have all the potatoes in there that are the one size. I always make sure I don't have two or three little potatoes that are too small. They're going to overcook. All they're going to do is bring mushiness to the whole procedure. And you don't want any softness from mash coming from a watery potato. You want it only coming from butter or cream. You know what I mean? So cold water, boil the potatoes, make sure that they're cooked through and then strain them team them, get them as dry as possible. Then I mash them with absolutely nothing. Do you mash them with a masher? I, or met, um, uh, I actually mash them with a whisk. Yeah, yeah, I have an old whisk, yeah, and a hard-handled whisk, and I just use, yeah, it gets a real good whip on them. At the beginning, it's, I just pound them with, with this whisk that I have. It's got a silver handle. It's an old, I've kinda, you can't really use it for much else other than the mash, <laughs> but it's my mashed potato whisk in the press. Then salt, white pepper, and I keep feeding it with uh, butter then, and I might add about 70, 80 mils of cream, but I try to have the the full seasoning and the full texture adjustment from only Kerrygold butter yep. and nothing else. And it's a fairly decent quantity of butter. I don't like them too wet, but I just like them that, you know, because there's gravy and everything else going on, you take all that into, into account. Usually when I mash them, that's all I do. And I obviously taste, taste, taste. It's imperative actually, to me that the flavor is bang on. I seen a recipe the other day that... I'd, and it was mashed potato like you've just described and then into a roasting dish and then finely gratinated uh, potatoes. Did you see the recipe? And then you... you f like So basically, the gratin bit that I spoke about... Is on top of the mash. You lay it on top of the mash and then you bang it in the oven. So it's mashed potatoes yeah. with a duff and more crust. working, actually. Jeez, I might do that. Yeah. Anyway, there's another one there. That yeah. <laughs> Maybe I will have mash on Christmas Day after all. Right, so what, yeah, other ve it. what other veg are we going for? I'm going to give you a carrot and a parsnip yeah. brush. So yeah. exactly like we've, we've been saying, peel the veg, chop it up, cook it. Like, you can't overcook this. Like, really cook, cook, cook. I actually think if you just about put enough water in there, and then boil it till the water disappears, and then give it a really good mash. And I like to take a little bit of the fat that the turkey was roasting in. So remember that sage butter. I'll tell you how to make the gravy in a minute, but when you take the sage butter away from the gravy, I like to cut a, put a couple of spoonfuls of that sagey butter, turkey goodness, in with my uh, carrot and parsnip. And then to reheat it, I would pop it into a dish and I'd pop it back into the oven to warm it through. So I'm not trying to have it in a pan and the pan is gone. So I 
have four or five of these roasting dishes that I know are going to live in the middle of the table and they all run through my oven and that's how I make sure that all those sides are nice and hot. Lovely. And then for my last one on the sides of veg, I'm going to give you a, this is a really beautiful centerpiece as well. And it's a whole roasted head of cauliflower. Okay. So you're going to soften about a half a pound of butter, right? You may not need it all, but just room temperature, a half a pound of Kerrygold. Um, slice off completely flush the root of the cauliflower. Peel off the outer leaves so you're just left with a beautiful large head of cauliflower. Any little black bits or impurities, skim them a little bit with a, with a knife just to take them away. Most are usually always careful, but that's what you do. Clean it with a knife if you have a couple of little dots that aren't, uh, that are blackened. Then you must do the butter first, so a full layer of butter. You're going to have a complete layer of butter over the head of so as if you're buttering toast, you're just buttering every single piece of surface of the head of cauliflower. Now you're going to season with sea salt all the way around. Make sure that you kind of follow your eyes all the way around. That You're holding the head of cauliflower on your left. Season with a dry hand uh, all the way around. Repeat that then with white pepper. Decent little dish of white pepper. Sprinkle it all the way around. That You're getting a nice little bit of seasoning on every single piece of surface white pepper and then microplane is back out again and a nutmeg so you're going to use a nutmeg nut and basically going to grate it all the way over and a really like excessive amount of nutmeg to what you think you would need try and get every part of it all the way around like the little bottom bitch turn it up on its side that's fine the butter helps catch all that and the butter is the, this is the thing about the butter going on first you see so the flavour's going in there but the, the butter is serves as almost like a plaster so it's going to catch all the seasoning and it's fantastic then in that sense and it also visually let you see that you're catching all that area then wrap it in tin foil, 200 degree oven, exactly 20 minutes. Take it out, turn the oven up to 220 degrees, take the foil off, the head of cauliflower goes back in for 20 minutes again and it comes back out and it'll be perfectly charred and you want it to be brown and you want it to start looking as if it's caramelized on the outside and then onto a nice bowl that it'll it'll fit it nicely. Drive a steak knife through the middle of it and set it on the table and people can just cut it off in little wedges or little pieces themselves. I'm going to just give you one more because I know a lot of people do it and it's uh, honey roast parsnips because... I think it'd be remiss of us not to say that there'd be one honey roasted veg. So if you don't want to boil the carrot and parsnips and do the other way that I said, the crush, it's honey roast. So all I want you to do is peel your parsnips, cut them in, cut it in half and then cut them into wedges. I like to keep them nice and long. And then I boil them into, into cold water, bring it up to the boil, just like the roast potatoes. And you're going to boil them for less than five minutes and then take them out chuff them up again so back in get rid of the moisture and then the same as like like what you're doing with the um the duck fat roasted potatoes if you want to use duck fat or goose fat why not and then i just think a little bit of vegetable oil just because it gets nice and hot and then onto a tray let it get hot carefully put your parsnips on roast them up till they start taking on a little bit of color and then you're going to take them out of the oven couple of knobs of butter and a little splash of honey over the top back into the oven and then when they come out season them well with salt and pepper and they are absolutely delicious again these can all be done and then let them go cold and then you're going to just bring them back to life through the oven so you've got your 
roast potatoes, your mashed potatoes, your gratin potatoes, the other gratin dish that Gary spoke about. We've got our carrot and parsnip crush. What else did we do? A whole roasted cauliflower. Whole roasted cauliflower. With roasted candy. parsnip. Celeriac works just yeah. the same. Candy, same principle. Candied Swede. We did candy. Candied Swede. There's loads to choose from then. So I suppose we better move on to our turkey. Dishing it out with Gary O'Hanlon and Gareth Mullins, a Go Loud original podcast. Proudly sponsored by Cully and Sully. Now is the perfect time to dig into a Cully and Sully risotto. Go Loud. Sounds better with us. We are on to our turkey. We've covered the ham and all of that. Christmas Eve is kind of a big part of Christmas Eve and the sides, potato dishes, left, right and centre. And there's definitely something there for everyone in the audience, you know. I'm going to go with the whole turkey. You do the crying and it's pre-stuffed legs, whatever. A lot of brown turkey meat fans in, in my house. I actually am thinking about boning and rolling the legs myself this year. It's too much. I lose too much of the meat when I don't do that. Probably will do it this year, but I won't get into it. I'll just chat about those that want to keep. I don't get it. Keep it a traditional. I don't buy a turkey that's that's too big. I think that's probably the, maybe. the best piece of advice. That don't buy a turkey that's too big. No, there's that's no the key. Don't. I mean, a 14, 15 pound turkey is a big unit. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, it is. Yeah. Like, and it, and in the scheme of turkeys. It's not that big, you know what I mean? And there's a there's a decent a good That's old money. What's that like three and a half, four kilos? That's what we think it's uh, it's a bit more than that, yeah. Five yeah kilo. It's about five, six kilo, yeah, right. there, thereabouts. And um so again, really good deep dish that we already touched on. I just go over the halfway point with with cold water. I put a full bunch of thyme in there, I sort of rip up some thyme and I throw it in there. There's a couple of carrots two or three onions um, celery and the white of maybe one leek and I have the turkey some way form or other triveted up off I just don't want the turkey on the base of the roasting tray I'm going to tell you something now that I th- might get me a bit of flack <laughs> right but I'm not going to lie I'm going to I'm going to be really honest I use that water as my gravy and all I do is I thicken it with Bistol granules yeah, that's all I do. I mean, I'll talk to you about how to make a gravy, but I don't, I don't, you know, don't mess with mess about. What I do is I use the chicken gravy granules from Bisto, and I just thicken that cooking liquor yep. from the turkey. What's really important there is that I season the the turkey skin. I don't season it over that water. I season it separately. Put it on the trivet. You could get caught out by having it too salty or whatever. You got to be careful when you're basting it. So if you you obviously are going to baste your turkey near the end. I cover it with foil. I just I just go to 180, 190 degrees. There's lots of different things at different times going into the oven. Really hard to go up to 220, down to 170, up to 200, down to 190. It'll send you mental. Try and keep it uniform. I try to cook nearly everything. I know we spoke earlier about the cauliflower. That's grand. And maybe I'll do that maybe the day before at 220 for the last wee bit. Or as my turkey's resting, I crack the oven up to 220. And I can do that because timing is easy for maybe me and you, you know what I mean? My biggest tip is loads of water over the halfway mark. Don't go crazy on the seasoning on the breast because if I'm going to use that liquor, I don't want to have it overly salty after basting. But I do baste it for the last half hour every five minutes. I'm basting it and I set the oven at 175 or 180. 
and the first 50 minutes to an hour is in covered foil. in foil and then I take off the tin foil and I just do it all by eye but I have an internal thermometer as well that I put right into the center of the breast close to the breast plate bone which is your center point and that's the point that you got to get your temperature up to and when it's just below that temperature that you want to hit I take it off when it's about three degrees before and let it finish itself so it's important that you keep the moisture and the heat in there you know what I mean and that's it and then I thicken pass it off the water and that strain I strain the liquid and I thicken it that's what I do cool well I'm not charging anybody for the dinner so that's <laughs> that's what I do I, yeah. I used to use Bisto growing up and yeah. whatnot. similar enough I don't use the water in the bottom of the roasting tray I go for the I put a sage butter under the skin so I've already told you I take the legs off and then I take the thigh and the leg bone out. So that technique is called tunnel bowling. So uh, you're left with this flat turkey uh, leg and thigh. And then I put the two of them beside each other. And I put that apricot and uh, thyme stuffing down the middle. And then I roll it up and tie it. Or if you don't want to bother tying it, just roll it up really well in tinfoil. Um, so you're basically making like a long sausage shape and then that gets roasted in the oven and you can't really overcook that uh, that turkey bone and roll because you actually want to cook it that it goes nice and soft and um, so you roast it for about two hours uh, take it out let it rest for a little bit just so it's easier to handle then take the tin foil off and then it goes back into the oven again and gets roasted up so that's the legs that are stuffed sorted out and then you're just going after the crown so the crown as i've said i make a sage butter which is literally just fresh sage and uh, butter mixed together. I push that up under the skin. So that gets this layer of butter under the skin. And then where you push the butter up, so up where the neck is, I put my stuffing meat in there. And then it goes onto a trivet of vegetables, like Gary already said. So it's carrots, onions, celery, leek. The bird sits up onto that. And then it goes into a preheated oven at 200 degrees. I like to start at that. So a little bit hotter, covered in tin foil for about an hour and then I take the tin foil off and then I roast it up and really the temperature that you need to safely cook a turkey to is 75 degrees. It has to hit 75 degrees for it to be cooked. Now there's a lot of talk out there about that temperature changed a few years ago. It used to be 72 but now it's 75 and that's the safest way to cook a bird. So just important to remember you're cooking poultry and not to get your family sick. That's really what you're trying to do. And then afterwards, after it comes out then, use that carbon fork that I spoke about. You're going to lift it out onto a plate where it's going to rest. And the best way to rest a piece of parchment paper, piece of tin foil, and then a couple of tablecloths sitting over it. And it's going to rest for two hours, I would say. So however long it's been roasting for, it's going to rest for the same amount of time. And then that'll make sure that that board is really tender and it's cooked through and then how I like to carve it is I take the breast off so just think like you're doing a chicken you're going to run your knife down along the breast plate so the whole breast comes off and then onto the chopping board and you're going to use your carving fork and carve it onto a tray where you're going to pop it back into the oven just to get the temperature back into it and I would say the same with your ham carve it nice and thin lay it onto a tray so you've got your sliced ham your sliced turkey a little bit of that uh, turkey juice that just sits down the middle of the tray piece of parchment paper on the top and then pop it into your oven after you have all your side orders ready and then it'll be piping hot. To make the gravy, I make a, a chicken wing stock, a roasted chicken wing stock. I'll make that in the next couple of weeks, which is basically a couple of kilos of chicken wing bones that are roasted into the oven and then that goes into a big pot with some cold water. That thing we keep hearing us talking about, a mirror pot, so it's carrots, onions, celery, leek. And then it's boiled up for about 
three hours really I mean you could cook it for six or eight hours there's no need at home three hours is the magic number yeah, when it, it comes to stock yeah yeah so then you just pass that this brown water this pass means you just drain it through a sieve and then you're left with this chicken roasted chicken wing stock or water and then all you're going to do is you don't really deglaze when you're roasting a turkey because there's so much moisture that's in that tray and then all you're going to do is uh, take off that um, all that sage butter. So use a ladle and just ladle off all that butter. And then all you're going to do is a little bit of a roux. I keep saying all you're going to do. A little bit of a roux. So it's just flour and butter. And it's mixed in with that roasted chicken stock that you've made and the turkey. And you're just taking it up to turkey juice. And that's a gravy. It'll be a little bit paler in colour if you really like that dark. So the, 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 the trainer you've roasted your turkey on, Gareth, are you leaving on your veggie trivet and and turn on the heat in that? And, add, so and what make, I, make your, you basically make your roux in that roasting tray, which is a nice way of doing it. Exactly. And you're still, whatever bit of veg or sediment that's left there your couch and all of that and that is the true gravy I mean I give the lazy man's version of it but, yeah, but, uh, but really and truly that roast that roasting tray and the trivet it is really really simple really is you can turn on the gas heat and then anything that can go in the oven can also turn a gas flame underneath it and you, as Garrett said about the, the roux you melt the butter and then you add in the flour. flour. And the flour, it's equal quantities of flour to butter, mostly for, for a roux. And then what you're doing is the, the amount of flour is relative to how much stock you have. So, you know, more stock is more roux, really, and essentially. And uh, and then you just run it through a sieve to get rid of yeah, all that veg. Yeah. And you're left with this lovely chickeny, turkey-flavoured yeah. gravy. And then if you want right at the very end, then if it, it probably won't need it because of all the sage butter. You can drop a couple of knobs of butter into it yeah. and it'll just make the sauce go nice and shiny. Nice little and shiny glaze. one piece of advice I'll give you, you'll never have enough gravy. The worst thing that could happen to you at a Christmas oh, no. was you ran out of gravy. Because that's the thing about it, with well, the stuffing and, and ham and everything else, there's an awful lot of um, stuff there that actually soaks up the gravy. It's the one thing now, and Annette loves loads of gravy at the best of times but she gets the jug on her own nearly <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. it's like but whatever it is about a dinner like it seems to just chew up uh gravy that dinner so yeah for There's sure one more little garnish that we make every year and that's cocktail sausages from super oh, and chipolata uh wrapped in a little bit of uh streaky bacon and drizzled pigs with and, pigs pigs and and blankets. Yeah. Yeah. my daughter georgia may makes them so that's a real tradition. They're made yeah. and they I put, popped into the oven. I can't believe I never said it, yeah, but I put I put little cocktail sausages in through the gravy. Like it's a that's actually a classic accompaniment to to a turkey gravy is chipolata. Yeah. And it's a little mini sausage. It's actually in its culinary term, I might be wrong, but it's basically thinner and smaller than the cocktail sausage that you our listener probably has in their mind a chipolata is a smaller version again of that and you cook off your sausages and then you actually feed that into your gravy and it's absolutely what I do then with the regular cocktail sausage I slice some of them up and it's beautiful so I give two jugs I'll give a chipolata gravy and just a regular one but everybody loves the chipolata gravy it's yeah, we, just, we just serve these little roasted pigs and blankets in yeah. the centre of the table and then drizzled with a bit of maple syrup they're so good I so know. good Top drawer. so look that's the turkey done the ham is done the potatoes are done and then because we've just been total gluttons and we've weighed, made way too much food for what we need you have the leftovers yeah so what so are we doing with the leftovers well since Stephen's Day is just rinse and repeat really so I think the leftovers Christmas night it's got to be a turkey sandwich anyway I mean a turkey stuffing sandwich with the cranberry sauce that you mentioned to make on Christmas Eve 
that's that's a classic. I mean, I I just personally though, I just love turkey and a little bit of Malden uh, rock salt and a small bit of stuffing. I love a little just a sardo or a white bread sandwich. No hero stuff. A little bit of mayonnaise and a little bit of cranberries. Really, really nice on that. Um, but really, for me, then say on the on the twenty seventh, is I might take a couple of bell peppers. A little bit of chili and a courgette or an eggplant if I have it in aubergine, and I'll fire roast red and green peppers. Um, basically, turn on the gas, sit the pepper right on the gas ring, burn them, absolutely burn them black into a bowl, cover with cling film for about forty-five minutes, and then that helps the steam get in under underneath the char, peel off the burnt outer bits, and I mix about a kilo or two, depending on how many quesadillas I'm going to make. So I'm going to basically make a turkey quesadilla that I serve with sour cream and pico de gallo, which is a fresh tomato salsa. And I get the 2kg bag of grated mozzarella. I add about a tablespoon of cumin, which might sound like an awful lot of cumin, and it is, but this dish needs it and this dish can take it. A full, large handful, a full bunch of store-bought coriander, chopped up last minute into the grated mozzarella loads of turkey whether it be the dark turkey meat or the white turkey meat loads of turkey in there it's all cold straight from the fridge mix it up well my fire roasted vegetables and what I do is I put a roasting tray drizzle uh, I slice courgettes top and tail them and then slice them in long slices in my mandolin red onion the same, peel them whole, slice them in the mandolin, drizzle them with olive oil, salt, white pepper, 200 degree oven until they're, until they're roasted and cooked. They're all come out, they're cooled. So my fire roasted red pepper, green pepper, courgette, onion, grilled veggies down, and then my cheese mixture with the coriander, cumin, and the turkey on top. Um, if you imagine like a large tortilla, half moon, cover half of it, flip it over, brush it with vegetable oil on each side and then a non-stick frying pan, turn it on to a medium heat, fry it. This is the tricky part is turning it, but you press it down, you'll basically have a half moon looking shape and you flip it over when you get it browned into the oven for about four minutes. Leave the oven on after you've roasted your veggies. Take it out, cut it up into six or four pieces and serve that with sour cream, guacamole, and maybe a fresh pico de gallo, which is basically nice diced tomatoes, lime juice, red onion, basil, or coriander, nice fresh with, salt and uh, pepper, really nice. And I'm going to give you a very simple turkey, ham, and leek pie. So you're going to make a white sauce. We've already kind of spoke about how to make a white sauce. So it's a roux-based sauce with milk. And then you're going to fold in, uh, you're going to dice off the leeks first before you make the roux. And then you're going to chop up your turkey and ham, fold it through into a pie dish, covered with puff pastry, I only shared this recipe on my Instagram the other day, so someone asked me for a leek and turkey pie, so I would say that's a great way to do it. And the other thing I would say to you is the, the freezer is your friend after Christmas, so don't be afraid. Make sure the rule is two hours after it's cooled down, it has to get into the fridge, so you can't leave that turkey sitting up on the counter all day and then think you can start it. You need to, like, after dinner, get it cut up into manageable size pieces, and then you can pop it into the freezer. Remember, you can freeze it after it's been cooked, and then just take it out. Really, three days is the absolute maximum anything can be kept. So it's the day it was cooked and two more days. That's the rule. So if you know you're not going to eat it within two days, pop it into the freezer, and then you're not wasting anything. The veg, 
I mean, I wouldn't be a fan of freezing the veg afterwards, but you're going to eat the veg the next day, I'm assuming. You're going to put another roast in there together. Yeah. And then that's it. That's your leftovers boxed off. Okay, so thanks very much for listening in, and I hope you got loads of useful tips and bits for this one. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, uh, be it Go Loud or anywhere else. You can also leave us a review, which is really important. And for next week, any queries can come in at dishnet at goloudnow.com. So thanks very much for listening from me, Gareth. Myself, Gary. And most importantly, happy Christmas to you all, and make sure you have a safe and festive day of cooking. Dishing It Out with Gary O'Hanlon and Gareth Mullins, a Go Loud original podcast. Proudly sponsored by Coley and Sully. Deliciously fresh, tastes like homemade ingredients you find in your kitchen. Go Loud. Sounds better with us.